Did you know using your browser in incognito mode doesn't actually protect your privacy? Take back your privacy with IPVanish VPN. Just one tap and all your data, passwords, communications, browsing history, and more will be instantly protected. IPVanish makes you virtually invisible online. Use IPVanish on all your devices, anytime you go online at home and especially on public Wi-Fi. Get IPVanish now for 70% off a yearly plan with this exclusive offer at IPVanish.com audio. Ohio, ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org. Online.com. I'm your host, Mike Silva, here on this Sunday, May the 1st. Hope everybody's doing well. Weekend series of the Giants just concluding. Disappointing loss today, but look, plenty of things positive to talk about, and I have a terrific show for you. I say that every week, but I have two really great guests in just a little bit. Mark Rosamann uh, at Sports Talk NY does a, a radio show out here on Long Island, co-author of a great book, Down on the Corner, Ralph Kiner and Kiner's Corner. Mark wrote about Kiner's Corner, the show Kiner's Corner. And he has a YouTube page, Sports Talk NY, that if you go on YouTube, if you just Google Kiner's Corner, he's actually got a lot of the old, not all of them, but a good selection of old Kiner's Corners. You'll see Ron Darling after an opening day victory, Mookie Wilson, Tom Seaver. You really could go back, and these are real treasures. And in in an era of media, I'm not going to get into a big thing here about it, it's so simple. It's produced so simply, but there's such candid interviews with athletes right after their performance. You can't get much better than Kiner's Corner. Uh, just brought back a ton of memories that I, I had as a kid, and I didn't even see a lot of the Kiner's Corners. It's really late 80s. I mean, I'm sure there's many of you longtime Mets fans that remember these from the 70s and 60s, and they're not really available. They were destroyed. The, the OR did not keep them. So Mark Rosamond was lucky enough. Interesting story how this book came about. He'll join us in just a little bit. I'll also be joined by Joe Trezza of MLB.com. Joe had a chance to catch up with Michael Conforto this weekend. We'll talk about the Mets, specifically about Conforto, but this team, which is uh, on a 5-1 and one homestand so far, wrapping it up against the Braves before they go on the West Coast trip. So Joe Trezza will join us later on. Not going to do the questions today. We're so jam-packed. I'll get back to that next week. When things are positive, you guys don't send anything out anyway. But in all seriousness, we jammed a couple of guests in here, and uh, we really didn't have time for the Metsmorized Online community's questions, but we'll get back to those next week. Let me go briefly here and set this thing up. I'm not going to sit here and throw platitudes about the Mets because they had a fun and exciting week, whether it's the Conforto emergence, the Cespedes pinch hit three-run homer, the Cespedes grand slam, the 12-run 
inning on Friday night, the fact that this team, which, like I said, it takes usually 50 games for me to assess a team or almost halfway through that, where did the month of April go? It's gone. I mean, that's as much as you think 163 games in 182 days is a grind and it goes by along and it's a long season and there's the dog days of August and so on and so forth, the season goes by in a snap. It really does because you're already a month in. So you're almost halfway. There's a lot of good things about the Mets, and not everything has hit on all cylinders. You have the Darno injury, so who knows what's going on with that rotator cuff. As great as Syndergaard has been, Syndergaard is having trouble holding runners on base. We'll have to keep an eye on that, see what happens. Uh, the offense has been a little bullish, although it's getting a little bit better uh, with that. You know, you're starting to see them score a little bit more without the home run. The bullpen has been really good, but there's still some storm clouds. I wonder how Collins is going to navigate that. I still feel that they walk too many batters out of the bullpen, and there are guys that really are one-inning guys. They're not guys that could get down and get back up, and, and that creates sometimes a problem. You saw that with Addison Reed this weekend. But, look, there's always going to be things you can pick on. So I'm not going to get into that. I'm not going to sit here and throw bouquets at the Mets because they uh, you know, certainly deserve it, but it's a long season, and let's see how things transpire. That 50 games – uh, goes both for the positive and the negatives as, as teams work their way out. But what I did find interesting was a column by John Harper of the New York Daily News, and he basically put the premise out, what if the Mets sign Ben Zobris? So if all this works out, if Neil Walker has this great season and has one of the better second baseman seasons in Mets history and reminds us about Gardo Alfonso in the, in the late 90s, maybe not defensively but offensively, uh, what if they sign Ben Zobris and there's no money left over for Cespedes? Where would they go? And Ben Zobris is a nice little player. He gets on base, makes contact. Uh, not sure. I don't really have metrics or, or the ability to compare. I haven't seen enough of Zobris at second. But I'm sure he's no worse than Neil Walker. I'm sure they're pretty comparable. If they sign Zobris, how does this Mets team look? And I guess it just is ironic, and it's more mental bubblegum that sometimes the best laid plans are not the ones that turn out to be the best plans. The plan for the Mets was to sign Zobris, get a contact hitter, get a versatile player, get a guy in the lineup that could get on base, start there and build the team out from that point. It wasn't to bring in Neil Walker for John Neese. It wasn't to bring back Ioannis Cespedes. If they hadn't done that, if Cespedes didn't turn down some other more lucrative offers that were out there, like maybe by Detroit and by Washington, where would the Mets be right now? I mean, because Cespedes is an impact player. He's not a perfect player, but he's an impact player. He's a player that changes games with one swing of the bat. That's a player that you need in the middle of your lineup. Walker is a very solid second baseman. He and Cabrera, and, and probably Cabrera would be here even with Zobras, so it wouldn't have mattered. But he and Cabrera have been a very solid up the middle, much better tandem than Flores and Murphy, and I've said that. But it's amazing how one move, the Mets thought they had Zobras. The Mets basically had him in the bag, and then the Cubs come out of nowhere and steal him. And then the Mets go out, and they make a whole different plan. And it's not by luck, because luck is the product of design, they say. I spoke to a very high level many years ago, about three, four years ago, high-level Mets executive. And I asked them about, or really the conversation came about, about the difference between Omar Minaya and Sandy Alderson. And one of my gripes at the time was how deliberate Sandy Alderson was. I felt maybe too conservative, too deliberate. And they basically told me, they said, hey, the one thing, the big difference is Omar Manaya was an executive that went out and saw what the offseason would bring or saw how things transpired and reacted to it. 
Sandy Olson is someone who is methodical and has a plan and is very detailed. And it could be very difficult to watch something like that when you're in the middle of maybe some of the tough years and maybe while it's going on, it's difficult, i.e. the suspicious negotiation. But because he has a point of view, because he's methodical, because he has a plan, it really, at the end, you're able to adjust, and they were able to do that in the Ben Zobra situation. And remember, Sandy Olson was not at the winter meeting because he was getting his treatments for his, his uh, cancer treatments. But the organization was all on the same page. They were ready for plan B, plan C. As soon as Zobras went to Chicago, bam, they went and they executed the Walker for Nice trade. They had things in the queue. And that's what's so important in this day and age because you just don't know. It's a very competitive game. So you're seeing the fruits of that. You're seeing the benefits of that. And as much as I – and I criticize Sandy Olson sometimes because he can be frustrating. He can be frustrating to listen to in an interview. He can be frustrating about how methodical he is. But at the end of the day, he's a businessman, and he's a guy that's trying to manage a team that's on a very uh, – how shall I say – a very thin margin of error due to finances. And that's where maybe the way that baseball is today. It doesn't matter that they've had some issues financially because of the made-up situation or because maybe some of the ways that the owners go about things. At the end of the day, he was able to execute a plan, a plan that right now, almost 25 games, um, one month into the season, looks like was the right plan. And guys like Ioannis Cespedes and Neil Walker and Cabrera and, and this group is starting to come together and really show Dane and Dad an energy level. And as much as the Nationals have got off this hot start, the Mets are right there. And it might be a very interesting race to see not who's going to make the playoffs here, but who's going to be a wild card team, who's going to be a division winner as we go throughout the summer. There is, look, we got the Braves. Maybe the Mets could get three more games, go into the uh, West Coast trip with an 18 and 8 record. That would be ideal. At the very least, take two out of three. Now, things as we get into the month of May are going to get interesting because you have the West Coast trip, because you have the Nationals. You have an, you're going to go to their ballpark. They're going to come to City Field. You know that's the first test. You know they're going to be fired up for that. You know Daniel Murphy's going to be fired up for that. Things are starting to take shape here in the National League. You've got the Mets, the Nationals, the Cubs. That's the cream of the crop. The next tier are the Pirates, the Dodgers, and the Giants. And I didn't really care too much for the Giants this weekend. Good offense, pesky, i.e. just like Kansas City is a little bit because they're a contact team. They've got some professional hitters. I don't think their pitching is all that good. Their bullpen to me doesn't scare me. The Dodgers, let's see. We'll see the Dodgers in a couple of weeks. Uh, you know, they've, you know, after they lost Grinky and, and, and offensively, they weren't the, the scariest team last year, although they, during the regular season, they were, but in the postseason, I felt they were a team with a lot of holes. They have Kershaw. Let's see both those teams right now are 500 and the NL West is looking to be that mediocre type of league. The pirates and the Cardinals are the real, for lack of a better word, wild card. The pirates are off to a good start. They've always been a very balanced team, a very pesky team that has underachieved in the playoffs. The Cardinals are a team that the sum is always greater than the whole. The parts, they say, they're off to a slow start. The Nationals basically took care of them rather easily this past weekend. So, you know, we'll see how that goes. But right now, Mets, Cubs, and the Nationals are the cream of the crop. And I think it could get to a point where those three teams are going to be in the playoffs. It's just a matter of, you know, where are they going to be? Are they going to be wild card teams or division winners? I think the, the Cubs for sure will be a division winner. The Mets, the Nationals, we'll see. It's still got a lot of baseball out there, but it's interesting. Again, imagine if it was Ben Zobris. Would, would this team be as good? And Harper brings a great point. So uh, anyway, let's take a quick break. When I return, we'll hear from Mark Rosamond. book is Down on the Corner, 
Ralph Kiner and Kiner's Corner. Later on, Joe Trezza of MLB.com will join me, and he'll talk about his take of Michael Conforto, who's turning into the Mets, this team's version of John Olerud. Really, this is what he reminds me of. He's John Olerud with that sweet swing, the doubles, the, the gap power going the other way. And, he, you know, John Olerud had good power. So it's been a long time since the Mets had a hitter like John Olerud, and they missed John Olerud greatly when he left after 1999. Maybe they found him in uh, Michael Conforto. All right, we'll take a quick break. When we return, you'll hear from uh, uh, Mark Rosamond. Of course, you can check me out on Twitter, at Mike Silva Media, and you can get this show on replay all the time at MetsmorizedOnline.com. We'll be right back. Gary and Howie are back, and they're looking for some competition. Think you have what it takes to beat the best at Mets trivia and win $5,000? Audition for the next Beat the Boot from home. For details on how to video audition online for Beat the Booth, check out SNY.TV today. you by the good old guys who invite you to see the Oldsmobile Cutlass Supreme and other 1983 automobiles today. Well, hi everybody, I'm Ralph Kiner and we have as our special guest Tom Seaver and it was a fitting day but two great pitchers, and Tom Seaver, of course, started the ball game for the Mets. And Tom, I think one of the greatest things that I saw was the ovation you guys—you came in from the bullpen to start that ball game. Well, uh, Ralph, that's a question that's been asked me a lot, obviously, since I was traded back here. Uh, what my feelings would be when I'd come in, I really didn't know. You know, I mean, it, you knew it was going to be terrific, and the feeling was going to be terrific, and but you just—you don't know personally. I try to be a very disciplined pitcher and control my emotions on the mound and try not to let umpires calls or errors or bad pitches or things upset me. But uh, uh, walking in from the bullpen and, and, and seeing, you know, back where we have, I have so many memories and so many beautiful memories, it was, it took me a couple innings to calm down. It was really, it was very touching and, and uh, um, you know, it, it couldn't have turned out to be a better day. Thank God we ended up winning the game, but uh, it was a very emotional moment for me. We're back, Mike Silva, talking Mets, MetsMorizedOnline.com, and I am joined by Mark Rosenman. He just recently wrote a book, Down on the Corner, Ralph Kiner and Kiner's Corner, also uh, wrote it with Howie Carpin. Uh, the forward is by Tim McCarver. Interesting topic, and Mark is uh, joining us for a few minutes. Mark, Mike Silva, how you doing? Uh, what's going on? Great, great to be with you, Mike. So the story, and I, I was reading a little bit about uh, how this project came about, a little bit of an interesting way that a, a book was created. Why don't you share that with the audience? <laughs> it, it's pretty funny. Howie Carpenter and I did a book together a year and a half ago, Shoot the Thrill, which was about hockey shootout, and we really enjoyed the process of working together. And uh, we wanted to do another book, but we really we didn't just want to just do any book. And we were kicking around some ideas, and uh, 
And in that period of time, I was looking, uh, my wife and I were looking to downsize and move. So we're getting the house ready to sell. And we had this wall unit that had been built uh, from the day we moved into the house. And all my items from Queens were stored on the top of it, like in a reveal. And I had totally forgotten all about it. And so when we were moving the wall unit to put some flooring down, I'm upstairs and the carpenter who was removing it, I heard like this thunderous crash and more crashing. And I run downstairs and unbeknownst to me, I had stored about 150 Betamax tapes on the top of this wall unit. And I bent down and picked up the first one. And it was 1985 opening day, you know, New York Mets. And I'm saying, and this was one week after Ralph Connor had passed away. So I go into my garage frantically looking for an old Betamax deck. I find one, I hook it up to my TV. And I fast forward and say, please be there, please be there. And then at the very end of the game, there's Kiner's Corner with uh, Gary Carter and Mookie Wilson. And right there watching it, I called Howie. I said, I got it. Let's do a book on Kiner's Corner. And that was the reason why we did the book. And the amazing thing is you had a Betamax ready to go. I mean, how many of those are left? You might you might make more <laughs> money on that than any book you're going to sell. What, what, what's that all about? Pack rat? Can we call you a pack rat a little bit? Absolutely. Well, not anymore. Now that we downsized, uh, yeah, the Betamax uh, went to the curb <laughs> after after I digitized all all the, the kind of corners. I I started watching baseball mid '80s. Um, you know, I'm almost 40 years old, uh, so I remember Kiner's Corner. I remember it from the late '80s, and I did watch. Uh, I don't know if it was one of yours, but I was going on YouTube and I was watching. And I'm assuming most of the ones that I see on YouTube are probably from you. I think it was opening yes. day 1988. It was a Ron Darling interview uh, after he shut down the Montreal Expos. And what I, what struck me is, and I understand that this is an easy narrative, how different it was back then. Ron is is basically minutes after the game running to the studio at Shea Stadium. Ralph is there. It's conversational. There's no cliches. Um, it's an easygoing conversation between two guys that are talking baseball. It's very simple production. And I'm saying to myself, from everything that you hold true in media today, it's completely different. And everybody loves this. And I'm like, is there any way we could get back to this kind of uh, situation? Probably not. But it really struck me watching the specifically the Ron Darling interview because that was the first one that I, I picked off of uh, YouTube. That's so funny because I actually, you know, covering the Mets, I see Ron a lot. So I actually sent him that uh, link to watch it, and he, he loved it as well. And I agree with you. You know, you look at it, and, and I've kicked this around with a lot of people, including Steve Gelbs. I would love I know they do the on-field interview, like right after the game, but that's maybe three, four seconds, and then the player's off into the dugout and into postgame. And then you cut to, you know, Mets postgame live, and you have an hour worth of analysis. Uh, this was just pure player and, and the Hall of Fame player talking baseball. It wasn't over analytical. It wasn't exit velocity. It wasn't, you know, how many times a shift was deployed in the game. It was just pure, simple baseball. And that's why I think people loved, of our generation loved it. it I, I think we've gotten to a point where baseball is overanalyzed and you lose some of the pureness of the game through the overanalyzation. And I would love to see it go back a little bit, but I don't think it will ever happen. I agree with you on that. By the way, we have Mark Rosenman. He's the co-author of the book Down on the Corner, Ralph, Ralph Kiner and Kiner's Corner. The respect, you hear it from uh, Keith Hernandez and Ron in the booth as they anytime Ralph is brought up, especially before he passed when Ralph would make a, a rare appearance in the SNY booth. Uh, it was like you know the Pope coming into the booth. 
that's something – I read the Neil Best piece in, in Newsday about Ricky Horton being honored about just getting a chance to be on Kiner's Corner. In your research and talking to former players and colleagues, I mean, Ralph uh, had this larger-than-life persona. We knew that as you know, as we saw at the, the end of his life, but you don't realize because ballplayers can be very egotistical, and sometimes, especially younger ballplayers. And at that time, Ron Darling was not a contemporary, uh, or David Cohn, or even Keith Hernandez of Ralph, but they they put Ralph in a, in a different category. And, and did you find out, uh, you know, why? I mean, it, had that happened because. Even for that era, that's that's not typical of athletes. Well, it's very interesting because what Howie and I set out to do was because Ralph spanned so many generations, including myself. You take a look at it, you know, from 1962 through 88, basically from the time I was two years old to the time, you know, I sent my son off to college. Uh, Ralph Kiner was a, a constant in my life when it came to, to baseball. Uh, so we really wanted to get that generational feel. So there are basically 10 players from each decade. And as the players went along, it's interesting. The players in the 60s, obviously, Ralph wasn't that far removed from the game, so they were all very much aware of his place in history uh, in baseball. Then in the 70s, it was not too far removed from his enshrinement into Cooperstown, so once again, they were all pretty much familiar. By the 80s, they really did not know what Ralph's standing was in the game, but Ralph was so unassuming. That's what people gravitated to him for, especially the players. When they went back and realized what type of player this man was and how unassuming he was, that's when the respect grew for them because they played in an era where guys who had one great season were Cadillacing it and, and, and showing off and, and being you know, the man, so to speak, where Ralph was had this tremendous career and was so unassuming. And he was kind of, even though he hobnobbed with stars, he was an everyman. And that's why I think they respected him so. And he knew how hard the game was, so he never, ever put anyone down. And that's, I think, why they respected him so much. This might sound weird, but one of the things that brought back memories watching these uh, videos on YouTube was uh, you left the commercials in. And I'm looking at some of the commercials, (laughs) and I'm like, I remember that as a kid. I remember that. And I'm looking at the car commercials. I'm like, that car is – like right now if I saw that car in the junkyard, I'm like, what a horrible car. And they're positioning it as a luxury car. I think it was uh, Mitsubishi or something. I can't remember. But the beer it commercials is the Mitsubishi, just in general. Right. It's, it's, well, it's there's interesting. a couple. There's yeah. a couple that you What do you, you got? Watch. You got any interesting ones? Because I haven't seen yeah, them. One of them is the Mitsubishi commercial, which was for um, – it was a car that was going to be in Cannonball Run 2. And it's uh, – that's one of them. Mitsubishi was one of the sponsors that Ralph had tremendous trouble pronouncing. But then there's also a light beer commercial with Yogi Berra. And if you look over Yogi's right shoulder, it's Jason Alexander before he was on Seinfeld, and he was just doing commercials. Wow. That's, that's interesting. You never know who pops up. Uh, by the way, I got Mark Rosenman, co-author of the book, Down on the Corner, Ralph Kiner in Kiner's Corner. Uh, definitely check it out, uh, whether you're a Mets fan or a baseball fan. Not surprised because media was different back then, but and I've heard this. I remember when SNY was trying to bring back some of the old Kiner's Corners, I think five or six years ago. They had said that WOR, I don't know if it was just incompetence or they didn't think. They, they just basically pitched these. Did you find out anything about that? Is there any way to get, other than the, the stash that you had, these, 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 these treasures that baseball fans would love? All gone, all erased, all trashed at WOR. The one that was saved was the Jim, the famous Jim Bunning, no uh, perfect game, Father's Day. And, Are the games uh, we, gone too? 
Did you find out? I mean, all these Met games that they had, they, they, they're, they're gone as well? Pretty much all gone. You know, the, wow. First of all, the, the format they were taped on became obsolete, so there were no more decks to even play them on. Steve Olbaum actually saved the Jim Bunning one just by happenstance while they were cleaning the studio, bumped into this huge case, broke his foot, and when he opened up the case, there was a Murray the K-Day at Shea and then the Jim Bunning game. And he actually ran with it before the last day that they were getting rid of the decks at, at WOR. He ran it by Rick Miner, who told them, hurry up and go dub it, and they dubbed that, and that's why that game, that game the last three outs of that game still exists. Wow. So think about an era of Mets baseball that a lot of fans to this day hold very near and dear. Other than the usual canned highlights that you've been seeing for 20, 30 years, probably from a highlight video, there's nothing. Nothing at all, unless right. there's the cable version of, it, of all that stuff. Yeah, the only thing is all those Met Rewinds, which were promotional films that, if you remember, as a little leaguer, whenever your year-end came here in New York, you'd have some Met show up, and they would show the, the year in review, which is what those Met Rewinds are. So those still all exist, but those were films. What did you learn about – did you learn anything about Ralph? About the, I mean just in specifically him, not just the show, doing this uh, research, doing this project, something that maybe you were surprised about or, or didn't know about? Just how revered he was over every generation. And the one thing which really shocked me, which you know, I know that Keith Hernandez has worked with some of the first basemen on the Mets in spring training, but Benny Ayala, who interestingly enough, the first time he was on Kindness Corner, went with Felix Mian as the interpreter. Uh, Benny Ayala, who of course hit a, his first at bat as a New York Met hit a home run. He was so happy because Ralph Kiner was his uh, winter ball instructor. And the Mets and the Cardinals shared winter league instructors in the instructional league, and Ralph was the hitting coach. So Benny Ayala's hitting coach, Ralph Kiner, you fast forward to the following season, is sitting there interviewing him after his first home run, and Benny just was beaming. At, I mean, he was so happy because he was able to make Mr. Kiner proud. That, that was uh, pretty interesting for me. Um, and just the reverence they all had for him, the, the pure, you know, unadulterated reverence they had for the man. Any interesting guests maybe that you, uh, you found out were on Connor's Corner that you, uh, you weren't expecting? I don't know if there was a way to go back just to get a list of the guests that, that popped on the, uh, the show. Well, the thing was, it, it's pretty easy to figure out who was on the show because basically what the show was was the star of the game. So if you go back to any baseball reference, and of course the Kindness Corner in the early days were only broadcast after Met home games. So if you go through every Met home game on Baseball Almanac, Baseball Reference, and look at the box scores, you could pretty much determine who was on, but it was everybody. It was, that was the, the greatest thing about Kindness Corner. Today we see everything, whether it be on ESPN or, or if you have the Major League Baseball Network, you can watch every game, every out-of-market game so you're familiar with the players. Kiner's Corner it was the only chance you got to hear Willie Mays speak in New York. It was the only place Willie McCovey, Juan Marichal, uh, Bob Gibson, that was the show. That was the only place you were going to see and hear these guys speak. So if you take a look at everyone through the 60s up through late 80s, anyone who's anyone has been on the show, and then the utility guys have been on the show, guys like Tom Herr, uh, Tito Fuentes, anyone who had happened to have a good game while at Shea, while it was broadcast on OR, would have a seat on the corner. And that was the great thing. And it was also fun trying to figure out before they came back from commercial who was going to be on the show. And I'll tell you a funny story. Everybody remembers in 1987 the Terry Pendleton home run. I was uh, 10 years old, watching the game, fell asleep, but recorded it, 
before I even looked to see how the game ended, when I got to my uh, VHS tape, I saw Terry Pendleton on Connor's corner. I said, oh, no, that's not good. <laughs> that's not good. So you're right. Exactly. You're, I right. didn't even have to know what happened. When I saw Terry Pendleton, I was like, you got to be kidding me. How, how does that guy, <laughs> after they were winning, uh, how does that guy get on there? So uh, that, that, is, uh, that is true. You know, Mark, the thing I was thinking about, and I'm sure that you uh, touched on this, is from what my memory in the 90s, it just Connor's Corner just disappeared. It started to get less and less. I think it was just the weekend he was doing it, weekend home games, and then it just disappeared. What happened there? How did, how did that come about? I think the networks wanted to go in a different direction. It was no longer you – know, the, the Mets were only televised on television, a uh, few home games dispersed throughout the season. And there wasn't enough continuity. And I, also, I guess the time and, and advertisers, I, I just felt that they, they felt that they were now skewing to a different demographic, much younger, and really didn't have the connection to Ralph. So, and I think they wanted to build a new audience. And then once the Mets owned SNY, I, I think they just wanted to go in a different direction. And, and at that point, also ESPN was big and, you know, all these new post-game shows, so they just wanted to go in a different direction at that point. And, and, you know, time moves on as much as I would love to see. I don't know if Ralph would have been able to handle that, the, the way the media shifted to make it interesting enough to hold the attention of a younger generation. But I think a guy like Steve Gelbs really, if they had a studio show instead of the post-game live, I think people would really, I think generations would appreciate that, to have Steve Gelbs sitting one-on-one with a Matt Harvey or Noah Syndergaard or, or – uh, a Neil Walker or a Cespedes after the game, just one-on-one and showing highlights. I think people would buy into that. I really do. I'll give you one better. Maybe they put Keith and Ron doing it. I don't know if Keith – Keith wants to h- hightail out of there as soon as the game's over because he's got <laughs> right. his, uh, his commute to, to uh, Sag Harbor, which, by the way, I live out on eastern Long Island. I know where Keith lives. I know he's about 60 miles east of me. But come on, Keith. It's not that bad at night. Come on. But uh, <laughs> that would that would be interesting – uh, to have that, I don't think it would go in that direction, but that would be interesting. And you could still have the regular post-game show. You go from the game, you have, and I guess this goes with the logistics of of how the media sets everything up with the press, the the writing press, and the, and the internet press. But you could probably, within twenty twenty five minutes, maybe have something like that. Logistically, it's a little tough because of the way things are done. But I think you have a good point. I think it would be something different that SNY can do, and I don't think it'd be all that costly. When it comes down to it, now whether the players of today want to do it because they're so used to being shuttled from their, the the shower to the locker, talk to everybody and go home, that would be a whole different story. Yeah, I don't think Matt Harvey would be sticking around for the fifty dollars gift certificate to a local restaurant. <laughs> you know, but the 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 players back in that that day, you know, couldn't wait to get that fifty dollars spot. You know, uh, it, it's incredible. Guys still have their jackets that they the leather jackets that they they got from Kiner's Corner. You know, Mackie Sasser still has that jacket. And he says he still wears it. <laughs> wow. Yeah. That's pretty funny. Hey, uh, uh, before I let you go, any of the current players that may not have been around at that time, did you get any any idea if any of them remember it? I know not all of them lived in New York or uh, rooted for the Mets growing up, but any of the current players have any any perspective in this uh, in this book? Zero, zero. Because uh, zero. if you think about it, you know it ended pretty much for its everyday run in the late you know late eighties for the everyday run. Early 90s, most of these guys were two, three, four years old. So, no, uh, none of them. It's like you know, it's it's history. It's moved on. It's it's got its place. It's 
again, the, the book for us, you know, obviously resonates with people our age. Uh, the younger player, people, the kids of today don't even know what Kiner's Corner was and couldn't, right. couldn't even fathom it unless they go and look at that tape and how low budget, how low production that was. It was a really thin set. Uh, in fact, you know, in the early days, Casey Stengel had a mic hooked up to him and during the break stepped up and pulled the whole set down while they were in commercial. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, it was really low budget. And if you tried to do that today, it would look uh, worse than Wayne's World. <laughs> That's a good analogy. All right, so you have the book. Uh, the, the book is down on the corner. Mark Rosenman is with us. Uh, Howie Carpin is the co-author. Give the listeners everything where they could get it, your appearances, uh, information to get to you, anything that you want them to know about. They can get the book on uh, our website, which is sportstalknylive.com. Obviously, they can get it on Amazon. And Howie and I will be uh, the first of a series of book talks and signings at the main event in Farmingdale, and that's coming up uh, Saturday. I believe it's May 21st is the date. I have to take a look at a calendar for you. Uh, Yes, Saturday, May 21st. 11.30 11.30 at the main event in Farmingdale, which uh, will be fun. We'll talk about the book. We'll take questions. We'll sign. It's a great little sports bar. People can hang out afterwards. I don't know if there's an afternoon game on that day. Uh, have lunch there, and uh, we're going to be doing that monthly. It'll be uh, different authors, lots of Met books, lots of Yankee books, all, lots of baseball books. That's a good that, – that's pretty cool. And I guess they could follow you on the Twitter feed and find out about these events and what have you? Sure, it's at Sports Talk NY. They can follow me on Facebook at Mark Roseman. They can follow. The the best thing is what we also like to do. There's a Facebook page. It's called Down on the Corner: 30 Years of Kiner's Corner, where every game we try to pick who would have gone on Kiner's Corner. Uh, we go back to games and and figure out who was on, and lots of discussions about the Mets there as well. And here's a throw uh, something to throw at you. Maybe you do the current team, and you say this is the guy that would have been on the corner today i don't know Something's yeah that's what we, just an idea that's what we've been doing we've been actually photoshopping guys you know taking the heads off of older <laughs> players and reinserting you know current players on it it's pretty funny uh two days ago yeah. it was obviously conforto and cespedes so yeah every every right. game we try to do that awesome my hey, photoshop Mark, skills are, are not that good <laughs> that well you know what this is a good uh, any any baseball fan but specifically mets fans i know enjoyed it when i saw it i was like this is great. Uh, if you could check out the YouTube channel, I've had a chance to look at um, a couple of them, and uh, it just brings back a lot of memories for me. And if you weren't around for the 80s, at the very least you get to see David Cohn, Ron Darling, guys like that before they became the announcer, Ron Darling, or the announcer, David Cohn, or <laughs> the version you remember today. Mark, enjoy the rest of your weekend. Thanks a lot, man, and uh, good luck with the book, and let's catch up again, all right? Thanks so much, Mike. I appreciate it. And that's Mark Roseman. You can check him out at Sports Talk NY on Twitter. You can check out his YouTube page, Sports Talk NY. Highly recommend it. If you want to go back down memory lane, you, you'd really enjoy some of the content he has up there with the Kiner's Corners, the interviews, uh, even some old games. If you weren't around during that time, great way to go back into Mets history. So can't say enough about it. Really interesting perspective, really interesting point of view. We're going to take a quick break, and when we return, we're going to have Joe Trezza, new to the show, MLB.com. He's going to be talking about the Mets off this just-completed uh, three-game series with the San Francisco Giants. A few more games left to go here on the homestand before they head out west. Joe's wrote a, a piece about Michael Conforto. We'll get into his ascension into the league's elite offensively. 
We'll also get into the Mets and their uh, their recent hot streak and the successful homestand they've had so far. Don't go anywhere. We'll be right back. 2-2 coming. Struck him out. Logan Varek gets one king-sized down in the top of the seventh. Despot is off the bench. He's got five homers, 14 runs batted in. And a big crack to left field. Hit it toward the wall. And it's oh. out of here. A three-run homer for Ioannis Cespedes. First pitch, Cespedes. A three-run pinch hit home run to tie the game. Unreal. 2-2. Ground ball right at Cabrera. And the ball game is over. Second straight day, Familia throws a 1-2-3 ninth, his third save in three days. The Mets' fifth straight win. Ioannis Cespedes with a huge pinch hit home run. David Wright with the go-ahead hit. And the Mets beat the Reds for the tenth straight time, 4-3. They're threatening for that now. Atkin Cespedes cracks it toward the corner. It's out! Cespedes with a grand slam, and the Mets haven't even dozen. In the air, left field, pretty well hit. Back goes Pagan to the track. Back near the wall, it's off the fence. Rivera is in. Cabrera on his way behind him. He scores. It's a two-run double from Michael Conforto. And it's 4-0 New York. The 2016 season is in full swing, and you don't want to miss a beat. You know what else you don't want to miss? Me, Mike Silva host of the Talking Mets podcast every week. Check it out and subscribe at MetsmorizedOnline.com. We're back. Talking Mets. Mike Silva here on uh, MetsmorizedOnline.com. And I'm joined by Joe Trezza. You can check him out at MLB.com, at Joe Trez on Twitter. Joe, uh, welcome to the show. How's uh, things going over there? Uh, going great with me, Mike. I'm, I'm happy to be here, so thanks for having me. Not a problem. You obviously wrote about Michael Conforto yesterday, just wrapped up an incredible month. Yeah, the Mets lost today, but still plenty of positives. Most doubles in a month, most consecutive uh, doubles. I think it was six games. He's statistically right up there with guys like Mike Trout and Bryce Harper from a, a standpoint of uh, new rookies, Carlos Correa and Chris Bryant. Statistically, he's he's right there with them. Now, it is early. He hasn't been around the league completely more than once. But when you look at the approach, when you hear what those who are in the game have to say, you have to be really excited about Michael Conforto. Chat a little bit about your take, and, and obviously you wrote a nice piece about him yesterday. Well, first of all, thank you, and thanks for reading. Um, that's uh, I think you mentioned the approach with Conforto, and that's kind of what separates him from a lot of these uh, a lot of these young hitters around the league who, um, especially a guy like Chris Bryant comes to mind, who is known as a power guy, um, and he strikes out a lot. And Conforto is not uh, that kind of hitter. He'll, uh, I mean, he did strike out three times today, mostly against Madison Bumgarner. But for the most part, he's he's a tactician at the plate. He's uh, he's a guy who, who, who lives in the cage and really has um, premeditated approaches to certain pitchers and who can really dictate at-bats, even at-bats against veteran pitchers like Matt Cain. And we saw that um, to a pretty good example on Saturday when Cain was kind of all over the place in the second inning. He hit two guys. 
and then he tried to come back in on us in Florida, which has been the book on him, and it was last year. Um, pitchers were getting him out most effectively on the inside part of the plate, and he had made an adjustment in the off season to kind of get his hands quicker inside to that inside fastball, and uh, and, and, and he spit on a few Matt Cain pitches, and one really brushed him back. And still, with uh, two strikes, he was looking at the outside part of the plate and looking to do damage on a ball out there. And then when he got his pitch, he lined it to left field. So he um, he explained all this to a bunch of us yesterday, and it's really impressive to hear him break down uh, specific approaches to specific pitchers. Um, like he has a plan going in, and he, he executes it like a much more uh, mature hitter does. And then on top of all that, he can hit the ball to all fields. You know, he can beat you with a single to left or a home run to center. Um, just a very impressive and, and mature swing from a, a young kid. And when you – I was reading Kevin Kerner, the New York Post, and he talked about how Conforto is a young guy that he's not satisfied. He's not resting on his laurels. He He's excited about being here. He's obviously excited about and he's confident about his success – but he's still looking at opportunities. He's still looking at ways he can improve. He's not uh, an ego in that clubhouse, and, and I'm guessing having uh, spent some time around him, you would agree with that assessment. Yeah, um, 100% I would. Um, he has – okay, so I, I, I think that the most kind of cage-ratty uh, kind of hitter that the Mets have had in recent years, a guy who, who spends every second of every day thinking about ways to improve – uh, especially at the plate, is a guy like like Daniel Murphy, um, and and Conforto is the kind of guy who has somewhat of that kind of same personality in the way that, way that he's he's pretty obsessive in 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 his in, in bettering his craft and uh, and studying different pitchers and analyzing his own swing, which is a lot of times is the hardest thing to do uh, for a hitter, and so he's constantly looking to make improvements and adjustments and. He's constantly trying to to kind of get ahead of the curve because he knows the league is going to make adjustments to him, so he's trying to get ahead of those adjustments. And he says it, that he's seen it. Um, and and you, uh, it's kind of easy to see if you if you pay attention, and in particular at bats, he makes adjustments uh, mid game a lot of times. Um, especially, I think it was Friday night is a pretty good example. Um, he got kind of tied up on a cutter in from Jake Peavy in his first at bat. And he struck out, and then second at that, he kind of moved his positioning a little bit in the batter's box. He he kind of let that cutter get a little deeper, and on the same pitch, he rifled it into left in the field. So, um, he yeah, he he's a hard worker. That's what everybody says about him. And um, I don't know if he can get better than the two weeks that he had, but but I don't think that's the point. The point is that he's going to continue to improve overall as a hitter, and. Um, and the Mets are excited about that. I'm joined by Joe Trezza. You can check him out at MLB.com, at Joe Trez on Twitter. You talk about how he can probably not get any better. I, I agree. The Mets offense probably can't get much better than it has been this week, including an exciting Friday with uh, a Baker's dozen there uh, against the Giants. I, I'm still trying to figure out if this offense is a bully offense because I know that we had uh, some situations earlier in the year where they weren't hitting with runners in scoring position, and it seemed like – if if they didn't hit a home run, they 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 didn't really score, and, and that's changing a little bit. But more importantly, I was thinking about where this team would be without Neil Walker and Cespedes, and it was an interesting column in the Daily News by John Harper, where the Mets pretty much had Ben Zobris locked and loaded; they were going to sign him. 
And he's having a decent start with the Cubs, but he's more of an on-base guy. He's more of a component player, whereas Walker and Cespedes, especially Cespedes, are impact game changers. And it is amazing that sometimes plan B, plan C, and that's what Sandy Olderson is all about, planning. He's not just going in and flying by the seat of his pants. He's proven that throughout his tenure. It's amazing that sometimes the best laid plans aren't the ones that wind up being where you go. And I know it's early, but think about this team if they didn't have those two players. They might very well not have them, especially if they wouldn't have Walker if they had signed Zobrist. Well, it's funny. I was thinking about that um, recently, actually, and I'm wondering what John Neese has to do to, you know, to, to sway that trade in, in, in favor of the Pirates. If he can become, you know, the, the next the modern version of Warren Spahn and, and, and Neil Walker was still, you know, he, the Mets traded a superfluous piece, piece and um, they got something that they really needed and he's been performing well past his career, um, you know, his career line. But at the same time, even if he was just having a normal start for him, and he got and, and, and the numbers that he put up at the, at the end of the year were the consistent numbers that they were expecting because he's been very consistent. Um, he would still be a major piece in that lineup and a veteran piece who knows how to drive in runs and hit with runners in scoring position and not make you know not make uh, not make a lot of mistakes. Uh, Cespedes is, as you said, a game changer and. Um, you can see he hits. He has some holes in the swing, but he hits good pitching. He has bad pitching, and he seems to really hit in the big moments, which is something that the coaches say that that you can't teach. Um, but I can't imagine this team without without Yohannes Cespedes. I'm joined by Joe Trezza, MLB.com. When you start to look at the Mets, of course, we could sit here and throw you know plenty of uh, positives and platitudes here. What are some of the things that you're still looking at as concerns or maybe things that ne- they need to start looking for? And they have a critical stretch. They play the Braves, then they go out on the West Coast, and then they come back and play the Nationals. So the true test is about to start. We're really starting to get moving here in the season. It's amazing how quickly April goes by. What do you see as some things that you're looking at that you need to see a little bit more of? I don't want to say just concerns, but maybe some things you're keeping an eye on that aren't nearly as positive as with the Confortos and Cespedes and and obviously Neil Walkers and Syndergaard and so on and so forth have accomplished? Uh, well, first of all, I'm looking for somebody to emerge out of the bullpen as a reliable middle innings um, kind of go-to guy. It's funny how stats can be a little misleading because going into yesterday's game, the Mets had actually had the, the their bullpen ERA was first in the National League. And yet, besides, Familia's kind of hiccuped a little bit, and, and, and Terry's still kind of been patching things together with that group. Um, you know, he doesn't have a lot of confidence in Bastardo. Um, Robles has been good, uh, but he's still hesitant to kind of... Terry's not hesitant to throw him in big spots, but he doesn't have his complete trust yet. Um, I'm looking for somebody in that group to emerge and kind of... You know, it doesn't have to be specifically a... They have familiar in the ninth, which they will, but they don't necessarily need to have an eighth inning specific guy, seventh inning specific guy. I'm just looking to see who kind of wins Terry's um, outright confidence and trust, and it's kind of up for grabs at this point because he's been going to Henderson and he's been going to Verrett, but Verrett's kind of a swing man. He's been going to Reed, but 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 only with guys on. You know, he likes to he likes for Reed to to start clean innings and not with guys on base. So there's a lot of 
what ifs all the time with a lot of these guys, a lot of caveats. Sometimes he doesn't want to throw to them. But he's going to need them because especially early in the season, these starters are not going to go seven, eight innings. Um, it's just something that is not going to happen. And um, the, the, that's the one part of that team that I think the Mets, I don't know if they can improve, but those guys can improve upon themselves. Secondly, I'm interested in uh, how David Wright performs in May, not only offensively, but on the defensive side of the ball. He's had, um, I think, pretty obvious throwing issues early at some points this season, um, specifically with the with slow grounders that he rushes the throws and the throws kind of sail into the first baseline. Um, offensively, he's kind of going back to that toe tap a little bit, that, that classic right, get the front foot down early, then curl, uh, approach the hitting that he abandoned early, early in spring training, actually was thinking about it after the World Series last year as early as December. But he did not have a, a, a fun April at the plate. He had something like 26, 27 strikeouts, which is very unright. And um, he's still taking his walks. But he, there's something to be said in the fact that he abandoned this new approach and went back to what he knows and what he feels most comfortable because he could tell something wasn't working. It was a timing issue. He was... He had extreme pull and opposite field splits. He wasn't using the middle of the field. And Terry's still going to bat him second for the most part. So um, he definitely – it will be interesting to see how he rebounds in this month and the weather starts getting a little warmer and uh, he starts to get into more of a rhythm. You can already see with, the, with getting the front foot down, I don't think it's coincidence, uh, he's using the middle of the field more and he's not uh, – getting as tied up on, on outside breaking pitches or inside fastballs as he was just about a week ago. 50 games is kind of where I put the first 50 games you could play around with and you try to find yourself as a team. And even in this day and age of the wild card, I've said with two with two entrants, you could maybe even play around until halfway through the season, maybe August. But with almost half of that 50 games, we're almost 25 games into it. I'm looking up and down the National League. You have the Mets and the Nationals, the Cubs, clearly the class of the league, uh, off to hot starts. The Pirates have played well. And then after that, the Dodgers and the Giants show some good things. They show some not-so-good things. I wasn't overly impressed with the Giants pitching this weekend. The Dodgers, I'm not sure what to make of them. The Cardinals have been uncharacteristically bad early on. I know the Phillies have played well, but it's hard to take them seriously. Same with the Marlins. I know D. Gordon's going to be out now 80 games. Hard. I, I, I know everyone's excited about the Marlins, but somehow they always seem to – underachieve or, or leave you wanting, this could really be a situation where you know maybe 50 games in who are going to be your playoff participants. It's just a matter of who's going to be the wild card, who's going to be the division winner, because I think those teams kind of jump out to me as far superior than the rest of the league. Give me your thoughts. What do you see as you cover a lot more of the league and, and see a lot more of the league than I do? Um, well, I think you make a good point. I think there are six playoff teams for five playoff spots uh, in the National League. Um, I do think Washington and the Mets uh, are two of those spots, and and they're pretty resoundingly two of those spots. Uh, Chicago, you'd think, has to come down to earth at some point. Um, I don't know if Jason Hamill is going to throw to a a 1-1 ERA the whole season, but but they look like they're they're well ahead of the, uh, the Cardinals, and when the Cardinals were ahead of them maybe, you know, six months ago, um, but I still think that St. Louis is going to play better than they have, and uh, 
I think out west the Giants and Dodgers are still legitimate uh, playoff contenders both. Uh, personally, I like the Giants because of the veteran acquisitions that they made in the offseason and the fact that they are still a steady, a contact-oriented team led by veterans and an excellent manager. And the fact that they just um, they kind of they they kind of know how to do this. You know, it's like it's funny being in the Mets clubhouse uh, now compared to a year ago, and it's a lot of the same guys. And a year ago, when they were on that 11-game winning streak, they were saying the right things, but but they just had this sense about them that they didn't really know how to win yet. They didn't know like what this was supposed to feel like. And now the Mets are starting to they're starting to learn how to win, and these things are starting to get more and more. Uh, normal to them, these successes, and you could see it in their demeanors and their confidence, and, and just the way they go about things and the way they handle everything. The Giants have been, like, Giants are way past that. You know, they they've won three championships in the last how, however many years it is. They have, you know, some of the best. Madison Bumgarner is one of the best pitchers on the planet. Buster Posey is one of the best catchers on the planet, and they have underrated veterans like Hunter Pence and Denard Span who's a great pickup this year, and, and Brandon Crawford, who's steady every day. And, um, and then you add Johnny Cueto, who's pitching like Johnny Cueto for the Reds pitched. And um, you can the Mets kind of saw the back end of that rotation a little bit this, you know, this weekend. They had PV and they had um, um, Kane on Saturday. And those are definitely question marks for those guys. But you look at a team like the Dodgers, and – while they have all-star veterans, they also use, they're going to use 50, 55 players this year. So they're going to rely so much on these young guys. And a lot of these guys are kind of quadruple-A guys or triple-A guys with not a lot of experience. I, I just don't love that formula, to be honest, when it comes to – it's a good formula for getting you through the world, you know, the, the 162-game season. But, um, you know, when there are big games, the Giants have – guys who have been there before and who are still very good players. Where, um, So I think they're going to come out of the West. Uh, I don't. I, I do think it will be the Dodgers and the uh, Cardinals fighting for that, that last wild card spot. And I thought the Cardinals were actually going to win the division. I was one of the few that didn't think the Cubs, that this was their year. I thought maybe next year it would be. But um, it looks like the Cardinals are going to have to fight for that playoff spot, and they're going to um, – They've got a ways to go because because they're not pitching the way they usually do. So, Joe, what do you have coming up? I know you're at MLB.com at Joe Trez on Twitter. You carry you know obviously cover the league and um, you know the Mets included. But give us an idea. Let listeners know where they can catch you and and what you got coming up. Okay, well, I'm uh, I'm like you said, uh, I, I cover the whole league. I cover breaking news for the for MLB.com, and um, I'm usually either at City Field or. Or Yankee Stadium these days, so we'll um, I'll, we'll be at City this week, and um, next week the Royals come into town and play the Yankees, so we're always excited for that. And then after the Royals, actually the best team in the American League, the Chicago White Sox, come in to play the Yankees. So I didn't think I'd be saying that a month ago, but um, so a lot of things, a lot of things going on. Uh, Mets.com, Yankees.com for the most part, but MLB.com and at Twitter at Joe Shrez is where I'll. I'll be talking and writing about baseball for the most part. Well, enjoy the rest of your Sunday. Thanks so much for coming on. Uh, Good work. Let's do it again and uh, appreciate your time today. Thanks for having me, Mike. Okay, let's do it again. And that's Joe Trezor.
MLB.com, at Joe Trez. Uh, we're going to take a quick break. When I return, wrapping up another edition of the podcast in the books, we'll be right back. Gary and Howie are back, and they're looking for some competition. Think you have what it takes to beat the best at Mets trivia and win $5,000? Audition for the next Beat the Booth from home. For details on how to video audition online for Beat the Booth, check out SNY.TV today. Hey, I want to thank Mark Roseman. Check out Down on the Corner, Ralph Kiner and Kiner's Corner. I want to thank Joe Trezor of MLB.com. You can check him out at Joe Trez. Of course, I'm your host, Mike Silva. Check me out every week on MetsmorizedOnline.com for the show on replay. Have a great week, everybody. See you next week. Did you know using your browser in incognito mode doesn't actually protect your privacy? Take back your privacy with IPVanish VPN. Just one tap and all your data, passwords, communications, browsing history, and more will be instantly protected. IPVanish makes you virtually invisible online. Use IPVanish on all your devices, anytime you go online at home and especially on public Wi-Fi. Get IPVanish now for 70% off a yearly plan with this exclusive offer at IPVanish.com audio.